The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Hey, it's Jessica, and we've got Dave, of course, and also Aaron Hay from Monument's asset management team. Hello, everybody. Hello. And we are recording this on September 26th at 1 o'clock Eastern. Obviously, a lot happened in the markets last week, so we wanted to drop a quick pod to kind of talk about what's happening. Let me do some high-level scene setting, and and I'm totally aware I'm, I'm bringing the doom and gloom here, but... Friday's market basically flirted with a a bear market as sell-offs deepened. Analysts are much less confident in where stocks in the economy are going. When it comes to inflation, a lot of investors thought the Fed was getting it under control, but CPI for August told a different story, basically signs that inflation may be more entrenched. And then lastly, a lot of companies are revising their outlooks downward because of the landscape changing. So that's the high-level doom and gloom. Aaron, Dave, can you talk a little bit more, though, specifically about why did the big market sell-off happen last week? Well, you know, there's never just one thing that starts a market sell-off. A lot of it is just, hey, are expectations being met? Are they not being met? And I think as the Fed came out and started to address their aggressiveness in trying to take care of this inflation situation, it spooked the markets And I think the markets have become more spooked by the fact that the Fed may actually make a mistake and get this wrong and over-tighten and raise interest rates so much that it causes much more of a severe recession than we're probably already in. And I think that is what has caused the last, let's just call it seven days of market volatility. It's because the market is saying, hey, we are worried, collectively we are worried that the Fed is going to get this wrong. And it's not like the Fed has a ton of credibility right now anyway. I mean, they have they have been using some confusing language. Go all the way back to 2018 when we saw that sell-off around Christmas time. I mean, a lot of that was just about ineffective Fed communication. And I think the market is looking at this and saying like, okay, we hear and read what you're saying, but we're worried that you're going to get this inflation thing wrong. And I share that sentiment. Yeah, Dave, I tend to agree with you. And I would take an Occam's razor approach, kind of like what you just did there, which just says the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. And it's it's simply that. It's the risk that the Fed, quote unquote, over tightens and causes something to break. The biggest thing that we have seen here with these Federal Reserve FOMC meetings, right? The Federal Open Market Committee, language and posturing, which didn't give investors any sort of comfort or visibility as to where interest rates will eventually go and when the the rate hikes are going to stop or taper or even start to go down. And I'd argue you actually saw 
a little bit of some visibility with this last meeting last week. I don't know if, if listeners aren't familiar with how these, these Federal Reserve meetings go, but they come out with their announcement, their decision, and they put out a statement. And then they take the, the FOMC participants, they take like a poll, right, with where interest rates are going to be going out, in this case, to 2025, and then something that they call a, a terminal rate or just quote-unquote longer term. And you're seeing here for 2022, interest rates getting to the 4.4% range and then going up as high, the midpoint around 4.5, 4.6. And then after that, everyone thinks that rates are probably going to level off or start to come down. And then longer run, which who can tell what longer run is going to actually end up to be around two and a half percent. So that's what's really driving this is how higher rates going to go. And when are we going to start to see the Federal Reserve start to pull off of these 0.75 percent, 75 basis point rate increases? Right. So I wrote a blog yesterday where I talked and it's possible that some people have read it, some people haven't yet, but just there are a lot of sentiments and consensuses that go on at times like this. And one of the things I noted was that there's a lot of times going back to 2000 where the market has had a significant drop inter-year. So right now, we are pretty close to, I'm just going to round it and call it a 23.5% year-to-date return on the S&P 500 because the market's down pretty big as it is right now. As of the recording right now at essentially 115, you know, the Dow is down 380 points. The Dow's down 1.3% and the S&P 500 is down 1.2%. So that means that right now we are pretty close, if not broken through the low that we saw in June. It's a lot. It feels like a lot. But when you go back to 2000, and I'm just going to rattle off, you can find this in the blog that I wrote that was published this morning. The intra-year drops, meaning that how much the stock market has dropped from its high in any calendar year. In 2000, we saw a 17% drop intra-year. 2001, there was a 30% drop. 2002, 34% drop. 2003, 14% drop. 08, 38% drop. 09, 28% drop. And then more interestingly, after that, the great financial crisis, if you will, In 2010, we had a 16% drop. In 2011, we had a 19% drop. And then in 2018, we had a 20% drop. And then, of course, in 2020, we had a 34% drop. So that's a lot of drops that are pretty darn close to the extensiveness of this drop. And I don't think people really could have ever rattled off, oh, yeah, all of those years. So going back to 2000. There's 12 years where we've had a drop intra year that is greater than 10%. Nobody remembers them. Here's my theory on why people don't remember those times. Because they didn't make mistakes, and that's why they don't remember them. They only remember the drops where they took action on their portfolio and they made a mistake and they regretted it. I mean, who remembers the 19% drop in 2011? Who Who on the news right now is talking about like, oh, this is very reminiscent of 2011 when we saw a 19% drop in the market. People just don't remember these things because the market recovered and they didn't take action that was detrimental to their overall investment strategy. I'm just convinced that the big thing to do right now is get the big decisions right and don't make a mistake with your portfolio because 
and I want to talk about consumer sentiment here in a minute, but I just don't subscribe to the theory that we're going to see another 20% loss from here. Yeah, another thing that I would add on to your comments, Dave, is is why people are so concerned this go around is you're seeing the bond market act in kind as well, right? You're seeing both stocks and bonds down double digits this year because of inflation. And that's just something that people aren't used to seeing. The bond markets, if you look at the the S&P 500 of the bond market, the Bloomberg aggregate, if you will, it's about down about 13 or 14% year to date. So that's also sort of shocking just on its on its own as well. Just as a reminder, though, of course, like if you already do have a, a bond portfolio or an individual bond ladder, this isn't to say that you have lost money, right? Meaning if you hold these bonds to maturity, you're going to end up you know, making your, your yield to maturity of what you purchased as, as long as none of the bonds you had bought, the issuers default on, on principal or coupon payments. But in the interim, it's, it's definitely not, not a fun ride. It's, this isn't how things are supposed to work. Bonds are supposed to pick up the slack when stocks are headed down, and that's just not the case. So if stocks are going down and bonds are going down, I know a lot of what we talk about at Monument is, is holding cash. What's your thinking on the holding cash in this environment where inflation is going up? Well, it'll certainly give you an opportunity to buy things on the cheap. Well, aside from that, though, let's just say like, you know, you do need a large amount of cash in the next 12 to 18 months, but inflation is going up. Like, you know, do you guys have any thoughts on that, whether it it makes more sense to just still keep it in cash, even if inflation eats into that slightly or to invest and, you know, to your point, like potentially make more money, you know, in the market potentially recovers. Like, what are your thoughts on that kind of decision point? Like I say, this sort of a a math problem, some calculus in here, not calculus per se, but the calculus of it. So Jessica, you said you need cash for in 12 months, whatever that happens to be. Well, if inflation is going to eat into it, would you rather lock in a 4% return, damn near risk-free from a government bond, or take the chance of having that go down another 5 or 10%? So I don't think it's as simple as, well, inflation is going to eat, eat away at your principal. So if you put it in stocks, no, like you can... There's no obviously no guarantee in the stock market. So you could have a negative 10% return, which you tack on inflation becomes a negative 15% return or whatever you want the inflation number to be. For the longest time, my entire career, people have been whining and bitching about not being able to get any yield, right? Guess what? You can get 4% yields now in you know one-year government securities. And I get it. There's inflation numbers out there, but it's it's a lot better than when we have been seeing. And I mean, you're starting to see that play out and and how the yield curve is positioned right now. You've got the front end of the yield curve is, yeah, again, I don't have it up in front of me right now, but close to 4% for, you know, one-year treasury bonds or treasury notes or bills. Like that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But Jessica, when you talk about the cash question, I would bring it back to this. I think the one thing that scares people the most about market volatility and looking at their portfolio values is this. They're scared that they won't have the amount of money that they need when they need the money. So I was just having a conversation over the weekend with my neighbor who's in his mid-30s, and he was lamenting how much money he's lost in his 401k plan. And he was saying, geez, maybe maybe I should stop contributing to it. I feel like I'm treading water. And I thought, my God, you're 30 years away from being able to even have that money. But that emotional perspective on things, like I'm losing money, he is looking at that and he's saying, I'm scared that I won't have the money that I need, but he's not reconciling that with, he 
can't have that money for 25 or 30 more years anyway. So I think that's what really scares people the most is not having the amount of money that they need when they need it. So to the extent that you do need money right now, I think you're absolutely fine being in cash, even factoring in the fact that there's inflation because there is a trade-off there. Okay, I may lose some purchasing power by sitting in cash. However, I'm not going to lose the ability to actually live and have the money that I need to live at risk when I actually need it right now. So it's people who are scared that they don't have the money that they need right now. Those are people that need to be thinking about their cash position. We talk about this in blogs, every single blog that we write talking about having the cash you need for the next 12 to 18 months, especially raising it when rates are at, when the market's at an all-time high. That's just a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew what your answer was going to be. I just wanted to play a little bit of devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, so you're leading me into that. Right. But no, yeah, I, I do. I think, I think that right now people need to reconcile their emotions and say, okay, what I'm really worried about is not having the money when I need it. And if I don't need it for 20 more years, this sucks and I hate it and it's painful to see it. But the real impact on their life is probably not as severe as it feels right now. And here's something else too. Every single bear market is always followed by a bull market. You just don't know when it's going to start, when one's going to end and the other one's going to start. So again, you kind of go back to that. When is it that you need the money? Mm -hmm. So Dave, you mentioned consumer sentiment. What are your thoughts on that? I've got a lot of thoughts on consumer sentiment. One of the things, and this kind of comes back to what Aaron was saying with the the bond portfolio is that this is probably the worst, if not one of the worst times in history for an investor who's got a 60-40 portfolio. Because like Aaron said, bonds are down 15, 18%, depending on what, what you, how you look at it. And you couple that in with the stock market losses of 20% and it, it's terrible. So consumer sentiment is low. So consumer sentiment is measured by a lot of different things. There's actually a consumer sentiment report, which comes out tomorrow there's the University of Michigan Consumer Index, Sentiment Index. That comes out, I think, Thursday or Friday this week. We've also got the Fed talking all week. Like, this is going to be a week of just a lot of stuff in the news. But interestingly, last week, the AAII came out. And that is another association of individual investors. And basically what they do is they survey. And you can actually go onto their website and sign up to be one of the people who gets surveyed. They survey individual investors and they ask them to vote. Are you bullish or bearish? And right now, the percentage of people voting who are bearish is 61%. So 61% of the people surveyed are bearish. Now, that 60% threshold has only been crossed five total times since the survey started in the mid-80s. Five, to include this one. So four previous ones. Two in 1990, which makes sense, right? We had the Gulf War and oil gas prices were spiking. So two almost back-to-back readings of that. And then there was the fall of 2008, which makes sense, right? I mean, we had big banks literally going out of business overnight. And then again in March of 2009, which is also very interesting, Because as most people will remember, that was the very end of the bear market. So when you look at what people's feelings were like back 
in, I'm going to pick on March of 2008 because the bearish votes got up to 70%. Okay. So that makes sense too. If you said to somebody, well, geez, how do you feel right now about the market? And it's March of 2008. You're probably not very optimistic about things. So my point is that in the five times that this happened, what is the average return of the S&P 500 after that hits? And it's in the 30s, but nobody feels like it's going to be better because everybody feels so bad. So bad news tends to reinforce bad thinking or negative thinking. And so the consumer sentiment thing is pretty interesting because when you look at each one of those four times, you can actually feel like, I like to quote a friend of mine that that said this way back in March of 09. A friend of mine literally said, I actually think we can see the S&P 500 go to zero. And so you look at what happened 12 months after that March of 2009. I mean, the S&P 500 was up 18%. And the percentage of the bearish voters then was 70%. I mean, that's crazy. And if you look at the 12 months after the S&P 500 was up, the S&P 500 was up like 60-something percent. So, you know, could things get worse? Absolutely, they could get worse. But when you look at the 12 months post those four previous times that the sentiment got this bad, the market was always up. So maybe one of the biggest risks out there that investors are facing is the risk that the market actually goes up when they are out of the market and don't think the market will go up. That's definitely the risk here is getting shaken out of your portfolio, right? That's what the market's designed to do is is remove money from from weak hands to strong hands. That's also another phrase. Attack on, Dave, to your AAII survey data. I've actually got this up in front of me too. So those prior four incidents in the last 35 years where the sentiment's been this bad, the following one year returns, 22%. This is, these are all positive, of course, 22%, 32%, 7.5%, 57%. One thing I will just make an observation. I don't really have anything else other than an observation on it. What's notably missing from those four time periods that you said? We got one back in the – right around the Gulf War a couple of times during 08, 09. Yep. Two. And then now. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's notably absent from those episodes? What episode is notably absent? COVID. It never got this bad during COVID. COVID, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, right. And that's interesting too, because so many people were worried about inflation. And I'm of the mindset, and this is why it gets back to the initial comment I made that the Fed could get this wrong is, I just don't see how raising interest rates is going to stop inflation on things like gasoline and food, certainly housing. And here's the other thing about housing, right? Housing as an inflation indicator, especially in the methodology used to to calculate CPI, both headline and core CPI, it's like an eight-month lag in that thing. Okay, so rewind eight or fast forward to today because the readings are eight months ago that they're using right now. Is there anybody listening who thinks that the housing prices haven't stalled or at least come down or most likely come down? Absolutely, they have. I mean, you've got mortgage interest rates at 6%. You think that there are still bidding wars going on right now in housing? We're not going to even get to today's housing prices for eight more months in the CPI number. So this gets back to the whole fear of the Fed thing. And, And really, my opinion on this is that 
a lot of this inflation, and I wrote about this, a lot of this inflation situation is a function of all of the economic stimulus that got pounded into the system way back during COVID. I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly when, and I'm, I'm going to need some some flexibility here on this, but I think the M2 money supply peaked in, I'm going to call it February of 2021, right? So basically what ended up happening was M2, the money supply, it began to increase in, I'm going to say April of 2020, because that's when the pandemic hit, right? We put $6 trillion into the system. And by the system, I mean into people's bank accounts, right? Boom, $6 trillion comes into the system. It spiked money supply. The M2 growth was close to 30% in the spring of 2020, which is an unprecedented amount of growth to the monetary system. So core inflation then started to accelerate when? Like May of 2021. So that's 12 or 13 months later, we start to see the inflation start to accelerate, right? And that makes sense because inflation is very highly correlated to money growth in the system. So then then the money growth, the M2, that peaked again at like the 30% number in February of 2021. So M2 stops, peaks, and has been coming down ever since. So to me, that makes it look like the core inflation number has probably peaked in March of 2022, which is magically 13 months essentially later. And since then, both M2 and the core inflation rate have been falling from their peaks. And then you can kind of look at some of the recent data and and it gets a little fuzzy here, but inflation has been coming down. The news kind of pollutes this a little bit, but the headline CPI number on a year-over-year basis, right? So June of one year to the June of the previous year or something like that. It peaked in June of this year, and it fell two sequential months, including the August report, which everybody went crazy about. And then the core CPI peaked in March, and it fell four consecutive months until this August when it actually did increase a little bit. So I'll give it that. But those sequential coming down of the core and the headline CPI are consistent with that peak in the money growth. And I look at this and I think, how much of this is about the fact that they dumped $6 trillion in the system? And there's nothing that the Fed can do about that. And so if the Fed is on this systematic, crazy interest rate raising situation that really won't fix inflation, and inflation is already on its way down, they could cause a very serious recession. I think that's what most people are scared of right now as it relates to the market. Yeah, one comment on, you mentioned housing, and it's sort of a delayed part of that data series with CPI. Something that a professor from Duke, his name's Campbell Harvey. He's a really good read, interesting guy. Go find him on Twitter, LinkedIn. Again, Campbell Harvey from Duke. He wrote something on on LinkedIn. This has been, I can't find the exact comment, a few weeks ago, about a month ago. Something interesting with shelter as it pertains to CPI. Yeah, everyone knows that rents have, have gone up a lot, right? That's not a shock, but how that actually translates to people's bank accounts and their experience of reality because, yeah, rents are going up, but not everyone is renewing their lease every single month, right? It takes, you know, what most people are, are typically on a 12-month lease. So it's going to take a little while for that to actually impact people that would be renewing leases, apartment dwellers, or people that are renting houses, things of that nature. So the measure is delayed, but the impact is also delayed as well, because not everyone is is renewing their lease every single month. Yeah, that's a good point. 
I think that we should wrap up by just saying, you know, what are some things that people should be considering, doing, thinking about right now? Where are the easy choices? Where are the hard choices? Kind of start with where I think the easy choices are. It's if you don't need the money right now, don't do anything. Just like if you didn't do anything in December of 2018, if you didn't do anything in 2011, if you didn't do anything in 2016, I mean, all those years that I that I rattled off previously, if you weren't doing anything back then, or here's an even more recent one, if you didn't do anything in March and April of 2020, okay, just follow the success story there a little bit. It may be painful to watch, but it's not actually painful to you if you don't need the money right now. That's the easy decision to make. The harder decision to make comes if somebody who is retired or about to hit retirement and says, hey, in January, I had a lot more money than I thought I was going to have. What should I do now? I think that is going to be a more painful and difficult decision that isn't as easy as just saying, don't do anything because you have to do something. So that's why I think somebody facing that situation is probably going to be best served by seeking some professional advice and opinions to get some good advice on the best way to do that. But there will be some pain involved in that, whether it's selling things now at a 20% discount to where they were in January and taking the money out and not being able to put it back in so you'll never see the growth on that again. Or scaling back your lifestyle in order to not sell things right now. And then, of course, the fear of that is how long can I sustain that because the market could keep going down even more. So that's the easy decisions and the hard decisions. From there, I think the silver lining here, if there is one, I'm going to use a little bit of a crass term here, but you know, the way to make chicken salad out of chicken shit is this. It takes some lessons from this and remember them down the road. Because people who are in 2000, 2001, 2002, people who are in 2008, 2009 will remember these things. And hopefully they took the lessons out of it and they say, okay, I, I remember. I remember what happened there. I remember what I did right. I remember what I did wrong. People who didn't live through that may be more prone to making mistakes right now. But everybody can take lessons out of this. And I don't want to get into it. And I told you so. But this cements the advice and the opinion that we have of you should always have the cash ready to go that you can live out of for 12 to 18 months to ride through something like this. And that you can never be ready for the recession, but you can always be ready for a recession. And that's by having a well-allocated portfolio, not being over-concentrated in things, and having that cash set aside that you look at when the market's doing really well and say like, geez, I really wish that I had that money invested. And you say that in January, but now you say, geez, I'm really glad I didn't have that money in the market. And also the warning goes out to this too. We have had a very, very stark example of investing in excess and concentration. Because right now, you know what I don't hear anybody talking about? SPACs, NFTs, Bitcoin, Dogecoin. Okay, so it was very similar to back in 2000, 2001 when people were talking about webvan.com. Anyway, I yield the floor. I don't have too much to add to that. The only thing that I would say is Dave just mentioned sort of the cash part of the equation. If you've got that solved, and on top of that, in addition to that cash, you do have something that is truly long-term money. I'll just say this. 
the best time to invest is the time when it feels the worst. When your gut tells you not to, that actually ends up being the best time to invest. There's not a whole that's not academic. That's just from experience. Just take that for what it's worth. But that's rung true a, a lot of times and most recently as, as late as, as COVID. So just take that into consideration as well. Have the cash equation solved. And then if you truly have long-term money, this may be a good time, uh, a good entry point. So mm-hmm. I want to throw more thing in there about bonds too, Aaron. Back me up on this. So advice to people out there with bonds. If you own individual bonds, which if you're a high net worth investor, there's a very good likelihood that you do. You own the actual individual securities and you look at your statement like, oh my God, the value of my bond portfolio is down 18%. No, it's not. You just have to hold those bonds until they mature and you will get your money back so long as the underlying issuer does not go bankrupt. Yep. It's also somewhat true with funds, but it's even more so, even more stark. Yes, with with individual bonds. Right, right. And the add-on to that is if, like a lot of people for the past decade, you have had a portfolio that is essentially allocated 100% to equity because bonds were yielding nothing, so you weren't buying them. Okay, now (laughs) bonds have come down in price, the yields have gone up, And this may be a strategic time to think about adding fixed income into your long-term investment strategy if you've never done so before. And I'm not saying tomorrow. I'm just saying right now it's looking a hell of a lot better than it did a year or two ago to have bonds become a part of your portfolio. If you already own them, you have got to just hold them until they mature. That's it on the bonds. All right. Well, I just want to encourage everybody that's listening. We have a mix of people who listen to this, clients and just people who listen. If anyone out there is worried or needs to talk or is concerned, give us a call. There's a couple things we do. One, if you're a client, we definitely want to hear from you if you're concerned about any of this. But most of our clients have plans and I think probably just they're pissed about the market, but maybe not worried about their plan. But if you are, we definitely need to hear from you. The second thing is, if you're not a client and you need some help, go to the website and give us a little bit of information on yourself. And even if you're not the kind of client that we work with exactly, we have a terrific network of other people that we like and trust, and we can get you in touch with somebody who can help you regardless. So hit up the website and fill something out. Let us know. and We, we will get you in touch with somebody who can help you at whatever level of wealth you are even if you don't look like the kind of client that we say we work with on our website. So do that, please. And I know, Dave, you have plans to also put out a lot of content in the next week or so as, as things really sort of change in the market. So keep tabs on our on our website, on our blog, also called Off the Wall, Monuments Social Media, and of course, this podcast feed. We're going to be doing a new episode soon with Aaron, Dave, and also bringing back Nate from our asset management team to talk about kind of reflecting on on Q3 in the markets and the economy and also your team. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks for setting this up, Jessica. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Dave. 
The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he, she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.